A lot going on. Let's turn our Bibles over to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Each of these letters we want to apply to ourselves individually. They end with all seven of them. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say. And then um, they, of course, uh, need to be applied to the church that Jesus is addressing 2,000 years ago. Um, And then I think we talked about this a lot, too, that that they also relate to the church um, generally, like throughout church history. Every era of church history, there is something from these letters we could go, man, this applies. Um, And then uniquely, it's interesting, there's something about each of these messages that Jesus says to these churches that um, seem to identify with a specific time of church history, not just generally every church applying them, but that seems to be, um, as we noted, the church in Ephesus relating to uh, that period of time um, from 33 AD to about 100 AD, the, the, the apostolic period from the time the apostles uh, followed Jesus through the book of Acts and then um, on into the time of their death. John is the last remaining uh, apostle here, writing um, 95 to 97 uh, AD. Um, Smyrna, we talked about um, after Ephesus, the post-apostolic uh, age, the second and third century, and then um, Pergamos is the church that we're going to look at today um, relating to the period of church history from around 313 to 600 um, AD, a period in church history where the church got away from the Word of God, a period where they began to embrace pagan philosophies and began to tolerate things they shouldn't as believers. Um, Idolatry and sexual immorality crept into the church. Um, The establishing of um, hierarchy, um, really just a focus on Um, The authority of man rather than the authority of God and his word began to set in as well. And so all of these churches, we have subtitles above the letters. Ephesus would be known as the loveless church. They had left their first love. Um, Smyrna, as we looked at that church, was the persecuted church. We talked about that last time. And then um, Pergamos, as we look at this church today... um, It's the compromising church. And as such, I've titled this message, I think it's important for the church today to confront um, compromise. So confronting compromise. So in verse 12, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you, you hold fast to my name, did not deny my faith, even in the days of which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols. To commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone. And on the stone a name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Um, They're going to throw up some pictures of Pergamos. Um, I think I'm going to start off with a rendering that would basically depict what it would have looked like 2,000 years um, ago. Um, It's 45 miles from, that's an ancient one. Did they show the, I'll just let them go. So they're going to show some pictures of ancient uh, uh, Pergamos, I'm sorry. Um, and part of this is important because 
This city, which this church lived in, was a, was a very, very pagan city. Um, by the first century A.D., it was the official center of the imperial cult. Having built the first temple, the first temple in the Roman Empire, erected unto Caesar himself, who claimed to be God and demanded that people would worship him. Citizens were required to, to burn a pinch of incense at the foot of Caesar's statue, honoring him as God at the end of each year. And those who did not would face the wrath of Rome. They worshipped Dionysus there. I think we're going to show some... Uh, there's, that's the rendering. But if you go through, they're going to show just some, some um, pictures of some of the statues that have been excavated from this city. And their, their, their worship of Dionysus, the god of vegetation. Um, there was the temple that was uh, dedicated to Asculpulus, which is the, the pagan god of healing. The, the uh, picture of that god was a, a man holding a stick, and on the stick was a serpent wrapped around it. That insignia, of course, um, is still a, a, a symbol of modern medicine today. Um, they, they had this massive altar that was um, erected unto Zeus as they get through these pictures. There's a picture of um, where that altar was in uh, ancient Pergamos, and they have uh, re rebuilt that altar in, um, uh, in Germany. You can go and visit that. Uh, there's a picture of that as well, I believe they'll be showing. Um, they had another altar to Athena there as well, the patron goddess of Athens. They had this massive 40-foot altar to Zeus, um, and they had the temple to Caesar. That is why many believe Jesus looked at this city, and he's like, that is where Satan's throne is. It was also known for its immense library, which held nearly 200,000 volumes, um, it had a huge gymnasium, it had a grand theater, as they'll show in some of these pictures as well, built into a hill, sat about 15,000 people. That's Pergamos, a very, very pagan city. And Jesus starts off his letter to this particular church, and he identifies himself as he who has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And again, each of these churches, Jesus identifies himself taking one part of the description that John saw of him in that vision in chapter 1. To the church in Ephesus, they needed to know that he was the one that walked among them, the, the, the seven candlesticks. In, in Pergamos, they needed to remember that he was the one that was dead, but is alive and lives forevermore. To this particular group, they, they needed to remember that he is the one that, that out of his mouth, you know, comes this two-edged sword. We know in Hebrews chapter 4, you know, the sword represents the word of God. The word of God is living and sharper and powerful and then sharper than any two-edged sword. Again, the image here of a sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus points back to Isaiah's prophecy concerning the Messiah, Isaiah 11, verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And so Isaiah saw him as the righteous judge who would bring a peaceable kingdom. But to bring it, he would strike the earth as it says here, with the rod of his mouth. Again, speaking of the judgment of God, the sword from Christ's mouth symbolizes the verbal pronouncement of judgment. And he wanted this church that, as we're going to see, had some issues of compromise to understand, look, I'm going to deal with that if you don't deal with that. And so he commends them in verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith even in the days 
of Antipas, my faithful servant or martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He's like, look, even though, you know, he, he recognized this church where they lived, even though they lived and planted themselves as a church that sat at, in, in a center of pagan philosophies and pagan practices, pagan worship, the seat of Satan's authority, the church held fast to his name. Rather than retreat to a more safe society, there were those in the church who held fast. They chose to stay and endure hardship for the cause of Christ. That's commendable. That's commendable faith. That's a commendable remnant that, uh, that well, part of the church that, that Jesus sees. At a time where self-preservationist kind of Christians would be ducking out. In this church, there were saints that were digging in and holding their ground regardless of personal cost. They decided to stay put in place in the midst of violence, in the midst of corruption, in the, the midst of, of chaos, in the midst of opposition and and incarceration, and even the loss of life so that they could shine as a light in a very dark place. And the extent of their personal sacrifice is highlighted by Jesus himself by noting one of them among them, this man Antipas, who actually lost his life for the sake of standing for Jesus Christ. His his martyrdom was so astonishing that Jesus calls him by name and labels him a faithful witness. So there's this remnant of this church that refused to compromise, that refused to deny Jesus, even in the face of, of crazy turmoil. What a steadfast, unwavering group that seemed to make up part of this church. Unfortunately, not everything was up to par with the church of Pergamos. There was obviously a faithful remnant that had stayed true to Christ. But several matters remained unresolved. And it tarnished the image of the faithful. To where Jesus would say, man, these things are so commendable. As it relates, I believe he's saying, to part of the church. To the faithful. But then another party's like, I, I got some things against you. Some of the church, again, had began to compromise on key issues. And it's interesting because Jesus is addressing the whole church. He's not just picking out a segment of the church, but it seems that there is a segment of the church that he would go, that's commendable. You're faithful. And then there was something about this church, a segment, I believe, of the church to where he's like, Hey, 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 you're not so faithful. I've got some things against you. And at the top of the list, number one, they, they tolerated the false doctrine of Balaam. They tolerated it. They didn't deal with it. We read about Balaam initially in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, 23, and then chapter 31 again. But he was this, this gifted prophet. The nation of Israel had come into the promised land. They're in the wilderness setting. There had been a victory or two accredited to them. And there was a city that lied ahead. And there was a king by the name of Balak. Not to be confused with the prophet Balaam. Balaam is a prophet. He's part of the nation of Israel. Balak is a king of the Moabites. And he had heard about these people and their victories. And he thought, man, if I, could, if I could find this one prophet, this man by the name of Balaam, and get him to curse the people of God, <laughs> man, maybe that would, that would save us. And so he sent some, some of his best men to find this prophet. And they did. But they weren't convincing. And he sent better men. And 
this would go on three times, but, but as those men would talk to Balaam, the prophet, they would be like, what is it that you would want? It was like, you, you tell us the number of the check to write, and we'll write that number on that check. And it's interesting because Balaam's like, even if you gave me all of this gold, and he almost listed off the things that hint, hint, hint. Even then, I would not you know, dare go that far and curse the people of God. And you guys remember the account that eventually, he, he, that seemed to like wear on him. And he got, well, I'll come and meet with him. And, and that's where Balaam is traveling. He's riding a donkey, and there was an angel on the road. And, and the, the, the donkey sees the angel, but Balaam did not. And you guys remember that account. And, and the donkey stops. He's beating the donkey. And the donkey stops again. Another stop. He's beating the donkey. And finally, the donkey's, the Lord allowed the donkey to talk. Has anybody had a donkey talk in their life? You know, <laughs> The Lord has used me a few times as a donkey. But then he would show up. And, and, and it was the restraint of God. He would not, it was an altar that was built. He would not curse the people of God. But then he did this. And this is one of the problems. There's three passages in Scripture that warn us about the doctrine of Balaam here. The way of Balaam in, in, in Peter's writings. And then Jude even talks about the, the warning of Balaam as well. But what he did is he, he says, you know, I won't curse them, but if you were to get your Moabite women all dolled up, I know that the young Israeli men would buy in. I know that they, they will seduce them. They'll pull them in. And Balaam knew that God was a rightful just God that he would judge. He's like, I can't really curse them, but they could do things that would bring God's judgment upon them. And that's exactly what happened. And here, it's kind of interesting as we, we look at this. In verse 14, Jesus mentioned the three practices within the doctrine of Balaam that corrupted the believers in Pergamum. Um, number one, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block. And so, number one, there's this stumbling block that's in their um, assembly. What is that? It's, it's bringing in and embracing worldly practices that would corrupt their walk with the Lord. That's what had happened to the nation of Israel. It wasn't that they just, you know, hooked up relationally with the Moabite women, but they married them, and they began to, to live the Moabite lifestyle. Idolatry crept in. That was the stumbling block, and, and it was something that, that they knew that God would forbid, but they did it anyway. Their fear of God had diminished their reverence for God's word, the warnings of God's word had weakened and compromise set in to a place where they began to openly embrace practices that God forbid. What was true with the nation of Israel in the days of, of Balaam was now true in the days 2,000 years ago and in the lives of this church in Pergamos. Thus they're now eating things sacrificed to idols. They became idolatrous. The very things that they once renounced, renounced they now embrace, just like the pagan cultures around them. And their compromise led to corruption. Corruption in the assembly by committing sexual immorality. As it played out with the nation of Israel in the days of Balak, it was playing out there in Pergamum. We were warned against the doctrine of Balaam three times in scriptures again. Jesus, beware of their doctrine. Jude, beware of the way. Peter tells us to, be, to beware of 
of his greed. Of getting to a place where you could be, where something about you, you, you and your walk with God, you would sell out. What part of God's word do you know and, and hold true to? But as time would come, other influences, greater voices, are going to change how you think. And you would sell out. That's the idea. In 2 Peter, Peter was talking about that. And in chapter 2, he was giving an example of Balaam. And he began by talking about different destructive doctrines and false teachers and prophets that, that come into the church and secretly sneak in, bringing in all kinds of weird heresies and denying the Lord. Um, and many would follow, he says, their destructive ways. And um, he would say, by covetousness, they would exploit the church with very deceptive words. And then he talked about the doom of the false teachers in verses 4 through 11. But he also tied the followers, those that believed the false teachers and the false teachings that crept into the church. And he's like, look, um, they're going to they're gonna be judged just like the fallen angels, just like those in the days of Lot, those in the days of Noah as well. They just didn't heed God. They'll be judged. And then he labels the false teachers as walking according to the flesh. They despise authority. They're presumptuous. They're they're just self-willed. They speak evil of things they don't understand. And he just, he's like, they got eyes full of adultery. And they they cannot cease from, from sin, enticing unstable souls. It's just like they know how to bait people in. And the unstable souls are Christians in the church that are not grounded, rooted and grounded to the rock Jesus and to his word. And then he says this. This is the context to which Peter brings up the example of Balaam. They have forsaken the right way. These kind of teachers are just like Balaam. They have forsaken the right way. And it doesn't need to be a person behind a, a pulpit. It could be anybody in the body of Christ that's trying to influence people to listen to the pagan philosophies of our day. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following, just like Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. There's something outside of God's will. There's something outside of God's word, although he knew God's word and he knew God's will, there was something that the world offered him that he bought into and he compromised. And it goes on to talk about these Balaam likes in the church that they have forsaken the right way. They're wells without water. They, they appear to have something refreshing to offer, but when you get close, it's just like a mirage. They're clouds carried away by a tempest. They, they deceive people with like thunderous claims is the idea and flashy appeal, yet they bring no spiritual nourishment. It's just a useless mist. For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever, Peter says. They, they claim to lead people into the light, but those who follow them end up in the same place in darkness. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption for by whom a person is overcome. By him also he is brought into bondage. So beware of the way of Balaam. Beware of the abuse of of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam. And again, the issue wasn't simply that such false teachers and their sinful teachings sprang up in their midst. Every church experiences sin and rebellion. Jesus' rebuke was directed towards the believers in the church who failed to take action against that. They tolerated it. 
embraced it. And it doesn't take long for the practice of compromise to become a pattern of compromise. Not only did the church in Pergamos put up with the Balaamites without rebuke, they also accepted the Nicolaitans. Verse 15, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Jesus had mentioned the Nicolaitans earlier in his church, uh, in his letter to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, but he commended them for their position towards the Nicolaitans. They actually, they're like, they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitan comes from the word nika, which means to rule, um, plus laos. It's, it's, it's the ruling over the people is the idea. Scholars are divided on the pr- uh, precise problem here, but it seems clear that they were subjugating the people to Satan's authority by teaching compromise with the world in a way that just neutralizes the church through compromise. This church parallels a time in church history under the leadership of Constantine. It's kind of interesting. Constantine, the first Christian emperor of the Roman Empire, he ruled from 306 to 337. Um, He saw the first two letters of Christ's name in a dream and and, um, and, and it was before a major battle, and he had, you know, those letters inscribed on all of the soldiers' shields. Um, and he began to favor Christianity. But over time, Constantine would tolerate paganism. And, and he would allow many of just pagan themes to be engraved on his coins. And he compromised, and he got away from the word of God. And there were many in the church that followed his lead. And so the following three centuries, there was increasing corruption in the church. More and more, they were getting away from the word of God and and attempting to combine Christian theology with pagan philosophy. And as a result, the church became very, it was powerless, it was carnal. They lost hope and excitement for the return of Jesus Christ. They became worldly, idolatrous, materialistic. It was a time in church history where they introduced statues and carvings of Moses and Jesus and Mary, and they became part of the church structure. They began to worship those images. Jesus commends Christians in Ephesus for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans, but he rebukes Christians in Pergamos for holding the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They compromised doctrine and morality probably for the sake of peace and unity in the church. Listen, compromise can be a good thing. How many of you guys know in marriage sometimes you need to compromise? If you're happily married, if, if, you're, if you're a husband and your wife raised her hand right now, you've compromised. She's like, yeah, we've done that. If she didn't, you haven't. And she ain't giving in. But there's some good reasons to compromise. In the sense of a marriage. I believe in the workplace. There are times when people don't agree. And we find a, let's find some middle ground here. I think we need to do this a little bit more as it relates to the political world. Let's find some compromise. What's best for the people? What's best for the business? What's best for the marriage? I used to get my girls Together, okay? You all have your opinion. Here's some middle ground. If I can all get you on the same page, if you can all just compromise a little bit, you might have some peace in the Cook household. But then there is a compromise that the world, there's a compromise that the scriptures warn us about, and it's, it's what we would say a worldly compromise. And it could be lethal. Compromise is founded in in selfish, impure motives. It lets go of what is moral, and it gravitates towards what is immoral. In the Christian life, compromise surrenders truth to a lie. 
like anything that erodes, it starts slowly, silently, but subtly it erodes away. It eats away at truth. Compromise allows falsehood to strangle truth, ultimately destroying it, and corruption sets in. Compromise will corrupt hearing as a deafening sets in towards biblical truth. It corrupts seeing as the eyes become more attracted to the lies. It corrupts feelings. The the, the compromising Christian develops supportive feelings for immoral things while developing intolerant feelings towards those things that used to line up with God's word or still do line up with God's word, but they don't agree with that anymore. And the corrupt feelings cause them to care more about offending the immoral individuals than offending God who saved them. Compromising Christians don't want to be offensive. The ungodly world that embraces them would not embrace them if they were offensive. So they don't want to be offensive. The biblical truth and morality can't exist, excuse me, in a culture of worldly compromise. This is at the heart of the message. Our culture that we live in today has redefined and has rejected many biblical values. It rejects God. It rejects how God defines the origin of life, gender, marriage, family. It demands equal rights for alternative lifestyles across the board. It rejects how God defines good and evil, and it calls good, evil, and evil good. It rejects how God defines sin. Our culture glamorizes sin, glorifies rebellion, and snubs its nose at God. And sadly, much of that has crept into the church. Year after year, the trends of the world have been embraced by many churches. It's kind of like a a ship off course. The winds and the unforeseen currents of the world have many churches off its God-given course, and they are headed for shipwreck. Hebrews 2.1 presents a clear cure of that subtle drift. For this reason, make sure we must Pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. It's not time to be compromising the truth of God's word. Hebrews 10.23 teaches just the opposite. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Jude would say in Jude 1.3, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to all of the saints. And so just as Jesus did for the church in Ephesus, he does with the church in Pergamos. And he's like, all right, here's how you get back on track. And he called them to repent to change their hearts and minds, to change their behavior, that that the compromise had to end. Five of the seven churches are going to be called to repent. So turn 180 degrees. Turn from what was becoming a stumbling block. Turn from the idolatry, from those pagan practices that led to sexual immorality, turned from subjugating the people to Satan's authority by allowing false teaching to creep in and be heard. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of 
my mouth. Now, Antipas knew what it was like to face the sword of Rome. He became a martyr for Christ. But he's like, look, you stand against Rome or you're going to deal with the sword of my mouth. I'll deal with those in the church that compromise. For a week, I've, let, I've looked at the scripture and I'm like, where do I start? If I was to give some examples right now, where, Lord, where do I start? And I'm not indicting our church, I'm not indicting you. This is the word of the Holy Spirit. If there's compromise in your life, if you see compromise in our church, like, wow, you've really allowed this weird, errant thinking and teaching to creep into the church here, Lance, why don't you deal with that? Please, by all means, if something is here that doesn't line up with the Word of God, may we speak up and rise up and kick that out in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. But it still subtly gets in. For you that are challenged with loved ones and friends right now that have, have bought into our, culturals, our culture's view on marriage, America's view on marriage, California's view on marriage, the President of the United States' view on marriage, which is this respect marriage act thing, which is not respect. I put the disrespect on that, by the way, because it's a disrespect to what God has designed. But if you've bought into that, you've allowed the lie to ring louder in your head and in your heart about what the culture says marriage should be than the truth of God's word, what God says marriage is and will be. And you've brought that into this church. You've brought that into your marriage, if you believe that. If you're like, hey, I think that same sexes should marry. I think it's cool to each his own, bro. You have completely, completely denied the word of God and everything he says about marriage. You know, you can let society and even an individual with their feelings today assign, reassign gender. I feel like I'm a girl as a boy. I feel like I'm a boy as a girl. And let culture even, you know, push that and say, we're going to have laws to pass that. No matter what, you can have somebody embrace the reassignment of gender, but it's still going to be sexual sin in God's eyes. One is truth, one is a lie. Where is your heart? Where will you stand? And I could stand up here for probably an hour and go issue after issue after issue where the, the enemy is trying to find the Balaams of our day that could be bought. Or the enemy, Satan himself. California, I think he would say, where Satan's throne dwells. In America, where Satan's throne dwells. You say, wow, you're getting pretty intense. This is intense. The battle lines are being formed. I find it fascinating. We go through the book of Daniel. And just three Hebrew guys... Three really just bros. And, you know, the king's like, okay, you're in my kingdom now. I've brought you into my world now. And, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he was, he was no slouch. This guy was serious. He could take your life. And he's like, you know, he, he appointed these guys daily provisions um, of wine and, and drink. And then... Um, wanted to have them trained in the ways of Babylon for three years. And now from among them, all these guys, there were the sons of Judah named Daniel, which is Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. Hmm. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Reassigned an identity to them. You're going to be Babylonian. We're going to we're going to indoctrinate you, and we're going to give you no choice. We're going to give you new names, Babylonian names. We're going to have you dress in Babylonian attire. We're going to have you speak the way we speak and eat the way we eat, 
and act the way we act. We are going to completely indoctrinate you, and you will bow down. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself and do that. And that's what the book of Daniel is about. About those men and women of God who absolutely refused to bow when the culture of their day was saying, you better bow. It's going to cost you. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't do that. I'm going to judge those people. And so the promise, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to him who overcomes. I'm going to give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I'll give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So if you don't repent, you got a problem. The sword, the judgment of Jesus himself. If you do, this amazing promise of overcoming compromise. The first thing is the hidden manna. Just as Israel received manna from heaven and the, the wilderness as its sustenance, the place in the whatever the world Egypt gave them, the, the leeks and the onions and the garlic and all, so too for those who trust Jesus. Stop compromising you're going to receive the bread of life. If you turn to me and come back to my word, you are going to find life. I will sustain you. It speaks of the spiritual food that is found in fellowship with Jesus and his word. And this white stone, a couple of different views. In their courts of law, being given a white stone is thought to represent acquittal. The black stone represents condemnation. Second view, on the white stone with a name written on it in ancient times, white stones were given to people with their names written on it as an invitation to like a special banquet. And many look at that and they're like, look, just hang in there, man. Heaven is a coming. Heaven is a coming. You've got my word. You've got my promise. Keep following me. Lay hold of me. Lay hold of the truth of my word. Do not let go. You know, I was mindful of this scripture, and I want to close with this scripture. As do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I think about this and all the people around my life that I talk to and I encounter. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then... I love this because in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, he says, and such were some of you. Can I hear an amen? amen? Such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. You know, there are some truths in the scriptures that are just hard to hear. Yeah, there's just some, there's some, there's some truths in the scriptures that, that, are, that are hard to share with others. But this amazing, loving God has shared these truths with us. You see, the world that we are living in today, if they, if they rule God out, this is the best that they have. You understand that? Are you guys, everybody stand. I'm not sure you guys are with me this morning. I want to make sure you're with me on this closing part. Or maybe this is too heavy. You're like, i got to process this a little more. Okay, do you, the, the non-believing world around us today, you realize if you, if you rule heaven out, you rule God out, this is as good as it gets. 
Okay, you've, you've heard this whole goal of utopia. We need utopia. Okay, so whatever that is, whatever they feel the best is. All right, follow me here. God wants us to enjoy this place. He's, he's given us marriage to enjoy. He's given us this earth to enjoy. There's so much of this earth to be enjoyed. But we are fallen. We can go back. You get all upset at Adam and Eve, whatever. But there, we are a fallen people, a depraved people. And there's some really important things in the heart of God as it relates to that. That's got to be dealt with. Salvation. He really wants, he really wants us to get right. He wants us to get worked out, this sin issue. He loves us and he wants this relationship with us. He just does. This world needs to hear this message. They need to see it lived out. And they're not going to believe it if we're just like them. They got to see transformation. They got to see all in what sanctification looks like. That's the daily, ongoing work of Jesus Christ cleansing me and making me more like Him. It's not like these, these, these topics are so politically charged. This topic of marriage, the topic of gender, the topic of equality, the, 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 just all of these, the, all this stuff. We need to bring the conversation into the realm of God's word. We need to. We need to, Lord, give us wisdom. And we need to help these people that have bought into these philosophies of the world that are so destructive. We need to help them understand how destructive that is. And we need to help them by loving them, sharing truth with them, help them understand who Jesus is because they still have that salvation issue. That's the heart of the matter. And I believe, a few years ago I wouldn't say this, but I believe now at this time and age in California, living in California, that churches like ours who are speaking boldly, lovingly and boldly in the name of Jesus, that we are going to find ourselves more and more challenged, being canceled, being labeled all of these things that might even make you be fearful and want to sell out. Compromised people want to be nice. Compromised Christians, they don't want to make waves. They're afraid of not having the right answers. They're afraid of the pushback. They're afraid of losing their job. So they take the reassignment and the reallocating and the redefining that culture puts on them, and they don't become Daniel-like at the right time and purpose in their heart when they should that they're not going to be defiled. So when that temptation comes, like, I don't know, I purposed in my heart. I have spent time on my knees with Jesus. I am in his word. That is a lie. I'm holding on to the truth. You're part of a church. Leadership of hundreds of people here who believe this. We're all in. Ain't going anywhere. Front line. What's the, where's the front line today? It's standing for Jesus Christ where you are. Where you are. And, and, and we do have a lot of people that have left our, our church and moved to uh, you know, higher ground, safer ground, whatever it is. If God led them, praise God for them. There's a bunch of them even meeting around our nation today in watch groups. They're still following us because they can't find Bible-teaching churches. Men that are humble enough, I guess, and, and in love with Jesus enough to teach his word for face value. But you should be and I should be. And the more I see what's going on with the world, the more my spirit's getting stirred up to stand up. And I pray the same is happening with you. Because if not, we could be just like Pergamos, a divided bunch. There are those that Jesus would be like, all right, they heard the word. <laughs> and they repented. And they're eating the fresh manna. It's, it's, they're, they're more in love with me and more in love with my word than ever. That group is going to have a look to it. That group is going to be, you know, unwavering. And they're going to be used. 
They're going to be the Daniels and the, the Shadrachs, the Meshachs and the Bendigos. And then there's going to be some that just, I can't believe how you don't tolerate these things, Pastor Lance. I hear it. You see it when you're driving by churches and rainbow flags around and whatnot. They're, they're buying into this stuff. It's crept into the church. Not our church, not on my watch, not on your watch, but it's crept into the church in America. Amen? Amen. So, please stand with Jesus. You know what Paul would say? Please stand with me as I stand with the Lord. He says it this way, follow me as I follow the Lord. The enemy's turning it up, people. And I hope we're ready. I hope in our hearts we're preparing ourselves. And I'm not, this isn't a call to some sort of activism. This is a call. It's a spiritual call. It's an eternal call. It's a kingdom call. Let's be kingdom kids. Compromise is lethal. It's lethal in your walk. It's lethal in your marriage. It's lethal in your family. And it's lethal in the church. May we see it for what it is. Let the Holy Spirit expose whatever that might be in our own heart, our own life. I bought into this. I've been accepting this. I've been tolerating this. Repent from that. Turn from that. And refresh yourself and your walk with Jesus. Father, use your, your word this morning in our hearts to wake us up where that needs to be. Stand us up, Lord, where that needs to be. And we ask, as the enemy is trying to do what he's doing, to just remove you from our culture. That we would have this, this strength, this inner strength, knowing that greater are you that's within us than he that's within the world. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen and amen. God bless you guys.